Welcome to the World War I History Podcast, produced by the MacArthur Memorial, a museum and research center dedicated to preserving and presenting the history of General Douglas MacArthur, which includes the story of World War I and that of the millions of men and women who served in that war. The Road to Armistice The final months of World War I brought considerable bad news to the Central Powers. On September 28, 1918, the Allies launched a massive offensive on the Western Front, using their superior numbers to attack over a broad front. This Fifth Battle of Ypres involved hundreds of Allied aircraft and resulted in a comparatively easy Allied advance, the recapture of Passchendaele and the capture of 10,000 German prisoners. Across the Western Front, American supplies and men were arriving in such numbers that they jammed roads and ports. Serving as a nurse, the future British writer Vera Britton always remembered her first glimpse of American troops. They seemed like giants to her and to most who saw them. In the last years of the Great War, recruits on both sides had been increasingly underage or small, the biggest and strongest having long since been spent in the early years of the war. If the latest offensive and the ever-growing numbers of Americans weren't enough of a problem for the Central Powers, at the same time, in the Balkans, Bulgaria, a member of the Central Powers, opened armistice talks with the Allies at Salonika. Faced with this situation, German General Erich Ludendorff informed his superior, Field Marshal Paul von Hindenburg, that Germany must seek an immediate armistice. Germany, he explained, was finished. Victory was completely out of reach. The only thing to be done was to try to minimize the damage. To this effect, both men agreed that it was in Germany's best interest to try to negotiate a peace before Allied boots crossed into Germany. Ludendorff particularly believed that a German request for an armistice could take advantage of President Woodrow Wilson's 14 points and that the idealism of the American president could be counted on to buffer difficult demands from the other allies. This willingness to seek an armistice was not just about gaining advantage for Germany in the post-war period. It was also about stopping a potential revolution in Germany that would topple the existing elites. Opportunistically, both commanders were prepared to force a reform of Germany's government, even if that meant the installation of a parliamentary republic, if that would neutralize the growing communist agitation in Germany. The plan was to use a revolution at the top to avoid revolution from below. A managed top-down revolution would also shift responsibility for the surrender to a civilian government, leaving the German army technically unconquered. The post-war myth that Germany had been defeated by internal elements and not really defeated on the battlefield was being born. The next day, the Kaiser and his government met at Spa, Belgium, at the Hotel Britannique. Ludendorff advanced his belief that the war was over and that Wilson should be contacted. He also announced that he could not guarantee that the front would hold for another 24 hours. An Allied breakthrough was imminent. Shocked, the Kaiser listened, but agreed that something must be salvaged from the situation. It was decided that Prince Max of Baden, the Kaiser's cousin and a well-known German liberal, should be made Chancellor, as he would be far more palatable to the Americans. Then it was suggested that the Kaiser make some sort of gesture to indicate he would allow a popular, representative government to form. This was almost too much, 
When asked to sign a proclamation renouncing some of his powers, the Kaiser began walking to the door. Then he turned around and signed the proclamation. The revolution from above was underway, and the German government was authorized to make contact with the American president and express Germany's total agreement with the 14 points. While this drama occurred behind the scenes, the war continued. That same day, American soldiers involved in the Meuse-Argonne offensive encountered stiff German opposition in the Argonne Forest. American casualties in the Argonne were high, and there were moments when American lines seemed to buckle. This uneven performance by troops new to war gave some German commanders renewed nerve. But there was another element to the story. Behind Allied lines was a traffic jam of epic proportions. American supplies and vehicles were coming to the front on an unprecedented level. As Ludendorff was aware, Germany could not hold out against such a wealth of men and material. Insisting on an armistice, he explained once more, we cannot fight against the whole world. The same day, Bulgaria surrendered to the Allies. With Allied troops occupying the country, a great wedge had been driven into the Central Powers. Germany and Austria-Hungary were now cut off from the Ottoman Empire. The first domino had fallen, and others were right behind it. At the beginning of October, British General Edmund Allenby's forces in Palestine had destroyed two Turkish armies and taken Damascus. The Ottomans would soon be suing for peace. In addition to this pressure, the Americans were also gearing up for yet another attack in the Argonne. Ludendorff begged the Kaiser to quickly issue the peace offer. Prince Max was more cautious. He wanted the Kaiser to accept that only Parliament had the right to declare war or make peace. He also wanted the Kaiser to step down as commander-in-chief of the German military. Hindenburg objected that this was all irrelevant, and that the important thing was to send the peace message as quickly as possible, because the army could not hold out for another two days. Prince Max coldly informed Hindenburg that if defeat was really just hours away, it should be the army doing the waving of the white flag, not the German government. Frustrated by the Chancellor, Ludendorff sent a message to the Kaiser and the general staff. In it, he explained that with its allies failing and facing heavy losses, Germany had a duty to guard against useless sacrifices. He concluded, Every day costs thousands of brave soldiers' lives. This was true, but as pointed out by historian Martin Gilbert, this was a sentence that could have been written on almost any of the past 1,500 days. On this particular day, however, the general deemed saving lives the most politically expedient strategy to get what he wanted. Between October 3rd and 4th, Prince Max was told to take the necessary steps to sue for peace. He informed the Reichstag of the decision and advised Austria-Hungary of Germany's intent to secure an armistice. On October 4th, a note was sent to President Wilson informing him Germany was desirous of an armistice. The communique made no reference to surrender. It merely asked for an end to the war without any preconditions that would be harmful to Germany. At the same time, hundreds of miles away, Allied officers were meeting to discuss the final campaign of 1919 and 1920 that would completely destroy the Central Powers. America agreed to accelerate the shipping program to ensure that thousands of artillery pieces and nearly 3.4 million men would arrive in France before this big offensive. 
roads were being fixed and expanded. Many thousands of miles of telegraph and phone lines were being strung up by American soldiers, all in an effort to ensure max communication capabilities for the coming years. For several days, Wilson did nothing with the message from Germany. He did not even share the message with the other allies, meaning that he was the only person outside of Germany that realized how close to collapse Germany was. When he finally responded, he asked the Germans to clarify their acceptance of the 14 points. Unbeknownst to him, literally at the same moment, the leaders of Great Britain and France were meeting to figure out how to scrap the 14 points and neutralize Wilson. On October 12th, Germany responded that it accepted the 14 points without reservation and that it trusted that Wilson was in a position to ensure that all the Allies accepted the 14 points as well. He was not in this position, but it didn't matter. As these discussions continued and the British and French began to caution Wilson about his ideas, a series of events occurred that further hardened Allied public opinion against Germany. American troops in the Argonne were encountering fierce resistance. Stories were reaching the public about the heroism of Sergeant Alvin York, one of the great American heroes of the war, but there were other stories of German soldiers waving white flags and then gunning down American soldiers who stood up to receive their surrender. Unrestricted U-boat warfare was also rearing its head again. On October 10th, a German U-boat sank a passenger vessel off Ireland and then a mail ship with 520 people on board. These events forced Wilson to listen to his allies and to American public opinion. Germany's chances for a peace without surrender were waning fast. On October 14th, the president informed the Germans that the Allied military leaders would set the conditions for the armistice. In vain, the German government tried to distance itself from the recent public relations nightmares. Six days later, Prince Max informed President Wilson that unrestricted U-boat warfare had been abandoned and that he hoped America would oppose the vigorous demands being made by the other allies. On October 23rd, Wilson responded, If the United States must deal with the military and monarchical masters of Germany, it must demand not peace negotiations, but surrender. In an effort to appease Wilson, Ludendorff was summarily sacked by the Kaiser. This action was made easier by the fact that days prior, Ludendorff and Hindenburg had issued a telegram to all German army group commanders describing the proposed armistice conditions as unworthy of Germany and unacceptable to the army. Once advocates of armistice, the two now sought to undermine the effort. The message also called on the army to fight to the death no matter what. The telegram was withdrawn after protest from another commander, but on October 25th, German newspapers carried the fight to the death telegram. Prince Max now had the upper hand. Furious that his two commanders had tried to directly communicate with his army in such a way, the Kaiser was easily persuaded to remove Ludendorff from his post. Hindenburg's resignation, however, was rejected. More bad news was to follow. The German home front was quickly becoming a hotbed of revolution. When the German Admiralty ordered the German High Seas Fleet to put out to sea for one last suicidal battle against the British fleet, German sailors mutinied, chanting, We do not put to sea, for us the war is over. Thousands were arrested, but this only served to further paralyze the High Seas Fleet. 
Mutinies were also being suppressed among the Austrian armies. The Austrian Empire was falling apart, with Hungary making moves to separate itself from the dual monarchy and the National Council of Czechoslovakia moving closer to independence. On October 28th, Austria asked for an armistice separate from Germany. And then days later, on October 30th, the Ottoman Empire ended its involvement in the war and signed an armistice with the Allies. For many soldiers on the Western Front, news of the Ottoman surrender was the first sign that the war would end soon. The first reaction of many soldiers was, Can you believe it? Maybe we'll live through this thing after all. Then on November 3rd, the Austrians officially surrendered. Germany's allies were disappearing. And on November 4th, a larger naval mutiny at Kiel left the city in the hands of tens of thousands of troops, sailors, and factory workers. The revolution from the bottom that Ludendorff hoped to avert was now spreading through Germany. Through all of this, the Allies continued to advance along the Western Front. Desperate to stabilize the situation, Prince Max had to find a way to remove the Kaiser. Wilson had said that the United States would not deal with Germany's monarchical or military leaders, but removing the Kaiser was far more difficult than getting rid of Ludendorff. Sensing a threat to his throne, the Kaiser had fled Berlin and spent all of his time at the German military headquarters at Spa. Surrounded by the monarchists and militarists who were completely opposed to abdication or the formation of a republic in Germany, he resisted calls to abdicate. The Kaiser was buttressed by Hindenburg, who assured him abdication was not necessary. General Wilhelm Greuner, Ludendorff's replacement, also agreed with this advice, but encouraged the Kaiser to go to the front to look for death or to be wounded. Kreuner was convinced that death would restore the popularity of the monarchy, or if the Kaiser was merely wounded, that this would generate a wave of compassion for the Kaiser that would be enough to stamp out the fires of revolution. Hindenburg immediately dismissed this idea, and the Kaiser left no recorded response. Prince Max and the German government no longer needed the Kaiser at this point, however. Armistice negotiations were proceeding independent of the monarch, who had become nothing more than a figurehead. At this point, virtually a quarter of the German army and half its artillery pieces were in the hands of the Allies. There were no longer any battlefield gains that could provide the Germans with an advantage at the negotiating table. On November 8th at 7 a.m., in a railway car in the Compigne Forest, a German delegation asked for terms. French Marshal Ferdinand Foch indicated that the Allies were willing to continue fighting if necessary. Seeking leniency, the German delegation warned Foch of the threat of communism that was growing in Germany. Harsh terms, they said, would further inflame the situation and leave Western Europe at the mercy of the rising tide of revolution. The French Marshal was unmoved. Germany was to be demilitarized, and it would be forced to evacuate all occupied territory. Prisoners would be exchanged, Germany would promise to pay reparations, and inform the Allies of the disposition of its fleet. The armistice would come into effect November 11th at 11 a.m. There would be no ceasefire prior to that point. These terms were final. Germany could accept or refuse and the Allies would continue their march towards Germany. To Greuner and Hindenburg fell the difficult task of informing the Kaiser that the war was nearly over and that he had to abdicate. They were armed with some devastating news. 
In a hastily called meeting of the divisional brigade and regimental commanders, it had come to their knowledge that the German soldier could not be counted on to be loyal to the Kaiser any longer. The Kaiser had planned to wait at Spa for news of the armistice and then personally lead his army back to Germany. Greiner destroyed this last illusion, explaining, Sire, you no longer have an army. It no longer stands behind your majesty. The Kaiser fell into a rage and Greiner and Hindenburg left him, not daring to return until the afternoon. When they did return, the Kaiser explained, You no longer have a warlord. The morning of November 10th, the Kaiser boarded the Imperial train and departed for the Dutch frontier. Warned that German soldiers at Liège were mutinous, his route to Holland avoided Germany and any great concentrations of German troops. He would never step foot in Germany again. The same day, the German government agreed to the terms of the armistice. At 5.10 a.m. on November 11th, the German delegates signed the armistice terms in the forest of Compagnie in Foch's railcar. Foch telegraphed commanders across the front that hostilities would cease at 11 a.m. French time. Anxious to maintain momentum in the event the Germans did not surrender, Allied commanders were ordered to continue fighting until 11 a.m. German troops continued to fight as well. As a result, many more men were wounded and killed in the final hours of the war. As 11 a.m. approached, in Belgium, German soldier Ernst Kielmeier was huddling with his comrades trying to escape the cold. Suddenly his sergeant appeared and announced, The armistice has been signed. Germany is now a republic. Kielmeier was tired of the war. He remembered saying goodbye in 1914 to a man from his town who was leaving to join a reserve regiment. Fifteen years old and boyishly excited about the war, he had told the man he would join him soon at the front. Rather than being impressed, the man had told him, If boys as young as you are needed, then the war is lost. Looking at his comrades on November 11, 1918, Kielmeier knew the war was lost. Just east of Mons, a Canadian soldier, Private George Price, was waiting for the armistice as well. It was 10.58, two minutes to the end of the war. A German sniper took one last shot, and Private Price was killed instantly, making him one of the last casualties of the war. When 11 a.m. arrived, American air ace Eddie Rickenbacker remembered a fellow airman dancing around and shouting, I've lived through the war. Elsewhere, the mood was more somber. When the British 8th Division was informed of the armistice, one man asked, What's an armistice, mate? A fellow soldier responded, Time to bury the dead. The war continued in some theaters for a short while, but this particular armistice was to last for 30 days. It was followed by several more until the Treaty of Versailles was ratified and peace was officially declared on January 10, 1920. The peace terms were devastating for Germany. In the last months of the war, Germany's military leaders had succeeded in sowing the seeds for future discontent with the peace. The myth that Germany had not been defeated militarily, just stabbed in the back by liberals and communists, would metastasize over the next decades. The Kaiser's plight mattered very little. Germany's national pride and anger over being denied a place in the sun alongside the other great powers existed independently of the Kaiser. 
All that was needed was another leader who could articulate this resentment and restore German pride. The memory of the armistice would be a particularly difficult point for national pride. Twenty-one years, seven months, and ten days after the signing of the armistice in Foch's railway car in the Compiègne forest, Adolf Hitler would arrive in the same location, request the same railway car, and force a French delegation to sign a surrender armistice with Nazi Germany. Thank you for listening. If you have any questions, suggestions, or comments, please contact Amanda Williams at amanda.williams at norfolk.gov.